gentlemen, start your engines. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Jim Paris Live, your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our guest segment. Good to have you with us. Now, two years ago, we did an interview on a book called Crime of the Century, the Lindbergh uh, Baby Kidnapping Hoax. And I have to tell you, of all the interviews we've done in the last couple of years, this is one of the most downloaded shows from our archives. And that was back when we were on the radio network and we had to go to commercial break every 10 minutes, which was obnoxious. But that was the contract that I had with the network. So I said to my producer, we have got to do this interview again without the commercials. And we were able to uh, reschedule this and and get them back with us tonight. I want to kind of set this up tonight and then we'll bring in our special guests. Charles Lindbergh went from obscurity as a U.S. air mail pilot to instantaneous world fame for making a nonstop flight from New York to Paris. Lindbergh covered the 33-and-a-half-hour, 3,600-mile flight alone in a purpose-built single-engine plane called the Spirit of St. Louis. I mention that because some younger people listening tonight, uh, because our schools (laughs) don't teach history, you may not know, believe it or not, some people may not know who Charles Lindbergh was as as hard as that is to believe. Now, after it was announced that the 20-month-old son of Charles and Ann Lindbergh was abducted on March 1st, 1932, the entire world grieved for their loss. 72 days later, the body was found in the woods next to a roadway a short distance from Lindbergh's house near Hopewell, New Jersey. And we bring back with us to the broadcast, excited uh, to have back with us uh, the co-author of the book, Crime of the Century, Stephen Monier. Stephen, are you there? I am, Jim. It's good to be with you. Uh, Good to have you with us. I saw my other guest line lit up. I didn't know if Gregory was going to be with us tonight or it was just you tonight. Well, I think it's just me tonight. Okay, well, that's great. Uh, no worries. I never do well with the two guest interviews because oh, I don't know who's going who's gonna to answer what questions. So this is actually easier for me. Now, to set this up, uh, to tell people a little bit about you, of course, you were with us a couple of years ago and your whole life was spent in law enforcement. Tell us a little bit about your law enforcement background and what drew you to this case in particular uh, to write a book about. Well, Jim, I, I, uh, I'm retired law enforcement now. I spent 38 years in local and uh, state and federal law enforcement. Uh, I served last 15 years at a local police department as the chief of police, almost 30 years with that agency. Then I went on to be uh, the U.S. Marshal for the District of New Hampshire. I was appointed to that 
position by President George W. Bush and served uh, for eight years in that position and until uh, my retirement. Um, Greg and I, Greg Algren, who is my co-author in this book, The Crime of the Century, uh, the Lindbergh kidnapping hoax, uh, we're, we're, we were both and still are amateur historians and have a lot of interest, particularly in the true crime areas. But um, years ago, the book came out in 1993, about three years before that, Greg actually ran across a, an old article written by Alan Hines talking about uh, the conviction and subsequent execution of Bruno Richard Hopman for the kidnapping of the Lindbergh um, baby in 1932. And um, he, he found the article to be striking in many respects, and he just, without attribution, he, he made a copy of it, he sent it to me, and he asked, uh, what do you think of this? And it piqued an interest in this case that we both pursued for about well, two years of research, uh, a year of writing and, and uh, checking things, and uh, the book came out in 1993. Now, this this book, uh, this case, has a huge following. I was not, I'll be honest with you, I was, I was interested in having you guys on because I'm a true crime fan. I, I like stories like this. I like to get into the, uh, you know, the details of, of crimes solved or unsolved. I'm fascinated by it. Maybe in another lifetime, I would have been a police officer or a detective myself. But I didn't realize how big of a deal this was that that literally all over the Internet, there are, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of discussion groups. Uh, it, how far does that go? I mean, are there uh, conferences and conventions? I mean, do you, how how involved do you get as an author on this topic with these people who follow this case? Well, it, it's uh, it still has a huge following, this case, and, and it still um, sparks controversy. And uh, there are books still being written about the case. If you um, so many years later, and it and it's because of uh, the whole controversial nature of how they came to finally, after two and a half years of investigation, to, to arrest this uh, itinerant carpenter who lived in the Bronx in New York, named Bruno Richard Hoffman, and um, through a very uh, a well-publicized trial. You have to remember, in, in 1932, when this happened, it was only five years after Lucky Lindy, also known as the Lone Eagle, had made that famous flight across the ocean, the first one to do it solo. And in 1932, just five years later, he, he was arguably the most famous man in the world. Um, so having his, and Anne Morrow, uh, Lindbergh, his wife, having their 20-month-old firstborn son allegedly be kidnapped, of course, has sparked uh, a huge interest around the world. And in this case, is still uh, sparking uh, controversy today. So your life as an author of this book, this is like an author's dream, right? I mean, this is like writing a book on the JFK assassination. This is never going to die out. I mean, people are going to be talking about this 100 years from now. They will be, and although Greg and I, and, and just a little bit about my co-author, Greg is a uh, criminal defense attorney, and uh, for 10 years while I was uh, with the police department locally, uh, I was the prosecutor for the department. So he and I first met, actually, as adversaries in a courtroom. Um, 
So he's a bright guy. And when we were doing our research on this case, one of the things that struck us is that uh, not only was Hoffman convicted on executed on very circumstantial evidence, um, but we felt that people had overlooked the very beginning of the investigation as to who should have been the suspects and how was it investigated and who actually led the investigation. It turns out we found Charles Lindbergh, the father, um, was allowed by the police departments and the investigating agencies at the time to actually lead the investigation. And there were a number of other things that uh, piqued our interest right away and which ultimately led us to the conclusion, which is the thesis of our book, Jim, is that Charles Lindbergh himself was more probable than not. Uh, he was involved in the negligent death and the subsequent cover-up uh, of the death of his son. Yeah, and hence, and, and that's, why that, that's we a shocking, it the Lindbergh kidnapping hoax. Right, right, and that's the shocking part of your book, where you know, just to we've done the, the other interviews, so people w- would already know who who've heard that interview, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But that you know, the the bottom line is that your belief that the child was killed accidentally, and then the kidnapping was staged to cover up the accidental death. But I want to go back uh, for a minute to this idea of Lindbergh himself running the investigation. Now, uh, we talked about this last time as well. FBI statistics would say if if something happens to a child, I think it's 70 percent you go and you look at the parents. It's 70 percent of the time. It's the parents, just like if a wife disappears it's probably the husband. It may not be in every case, but that's where the the odds, the statistics take you. It, now, in this case, back at that time in the 30s, was that just something culturally that we did not look at? We, we did not consider, hey, this could be the parents. Um, it, it's It seems like that would have been the logical place to start. Well, yes, and uh, it it did seem that way. And and to the credit, uh, to some credit to the New Jersey State Police, which was a newly formed law enforcement agency at the time, led ironically by H. Norman Schwarzkopf, the uh, father of our Desert Storm commander. um, The uh, some of the police had uh, some very good instincts on the case initially. They said. Look, there's too many things here that point to this being an inside job, um, and and we can talk about some what some of those facts were. But um, so they had some good instincts, but what they didn't do is they didn't consider the parents, and they certainly didn't consider Colonel Charles Lindbergh. Uh, in fact, most of them were just in awe of being there that night with Colonel Lindbergh, and. Uh, he was allowed to actually direct a lot of the investigation, which, of course, would never happen today. And bear in mind, the FBI statistics that you talk about, Jim, you know, the FBI was a newly formed agency at the time. and They did not have jurisdiction over kidnappings. So it was entirely a local law enforcement uh, responsibility. In fact, it was a Lindbergh case that allowed Congress to subsequently pass um, a federal law that gave uh, FBI when when asked jurisdiction to investigate interstate kidnappings. 
Now, a lot of the reason why it becomes improbable that it was an outsider involved in this kidnapping was largely because of the setting. Tell us about the the Lindbergh home and where that home was and the fact that it wasn't uh, in an area where a lot of people would have had access. Sure. So in 1932, um, um, Ann uh, Ann Lindbergh and uh, Charles, uh, they were building a new home in Hopewell, New Jersey, which in an area was about 500-acre plot that they bought, and they were building this new home where the kidnapping allegedly occurred. Um, It was in a very rural and remote setting. The nearest neighbor was a good half mile away. It was a uh, uh, kind of a country road, which which would often wash out in the spring. Um, the house sat on a hilltop, but it was surrounded by woods and uh, thickets and uh, some fields, and it was hard to get to. Um, at the time, the house wasn't quite complete, so it was the habit at the time that the uh, the Lindberghs, who were staying in Englewood, New Jersey, closer to New York City, because that's where uh, Lindbergh was doing some consulting for what became TWA, um, they were staying with Anne's parents, uh, the Morrows, Dwight and Elizabeth Morrow, very wealthy uh, couple. Uh, he had been the U.S. ambassador to Mexico. Um, so they would stay there during the week and they were spending only the weekends out in Hopewell. So this is not a place that, you know, you would know that the Lindberghs were there. In fact, many of the neighbors didn't even know the Lindberghs were building a house in the area. Um, so it was hard to get to. The other thing that night, of course, there were a number of factors that pointed to somebody having to have some inside knowledge. The baby's room was on the second floor of the home. Allegedly, the baby was taken sometime between 8.30 that evening and 10 p.m. that evening. And this was in a house where there was not only um, Charles and Ann Lindbergh, but their cook and butler, Oliver and Elsie Waitley, and the baby's nurse, who was brought in from Englewood uh, that night, that day, to help take care of the baby, uh, her the name was uh, Betty Gow, the nurse's name, and there was a dog in the house, a high-strung terrier. So uh, it's very unlikely uh, that someone would attempt to kidnap a child from a second-floor window, uh, the only window uh, where the shutters didn't latch, by the way, it was unlatched, and uh, go into this house where there were five adults up and moving around lights on in the house, and you'd have to know that they were there. And they were there on a Tuesday evening at Charles's direction when ordinarily they returned on Mondays to the Englewood home, and then Charles would go on to his job in New York City. So there were a whole number of factors that said, wait a minute, how would somebody know this, and why would somebody attempt a kidnapping when all the adults were up and moving around in the house? And how would they know to go to this one second floor window where the baby's room was uh, and go into the only shutter which wouldn't latch? Yeah, there's a there's a lot there. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot there's a lot yeah. there. And, and then it gets more and more bizarre because then we uh, you know, there's there's a ransom note, which 
Um, the right. ransom note, you can find this online, folks, if you want to read this. It's on the Wikipedia page, but it's very crudely written. Uh, not only poor penmanship, uh, you know, horrible grammar. I don't know if there's a complete sentence in this thing. It's barely legible. Uh, and then this this ransom note. Tell us about the ransom note, what it was demanding for the family to pay and to do and where this ransom note was found. So here's the other odd thing that also uh, piqued our interest, Greg and mine, when we were researching this. So the, the ransom note, at, at around 10 o'clock, uh, the, the nursemaid, uh, Betty Gow, after she had put the, she and Ann had put the baby to bed around 7.30 that evening, and Lindbergh had left instructions the baby's not to be disturbed until 10 p.m. again for his last potty break before the night. Um, but the ransom note, um, as Betty Gow came in to check on the baby around 10 o'clock, she had previously done so the last time around 8.15 p.m. She goes in and she didn't want to turn on the lights to wake up the baby or startle him. So she went over and found that the crib was empty. So she went out to see if Ann had the baby. Ann's uh, room was uh, through a connecting hallway to the nursery. And she said, Ann, do you have the baby? And she says, no, I don't. Um, maybe Charles does. Now, Charles was downstairs for about a half an hour in his study, which is right below the nursery. She went, Betty went down and said, uh, um, Mr. Lindbergh, Colonel, do you, do you have the baby? Without saying a word, he jumps up, he rushed upstairs, and he meets Ann as she's coming in from the bedroom. And without even looking around the rest of the house, um, she, he said, and they have stolen our baby. And then he rushed downstairs, he grabbed a rifle, and he headed out into the night. So uh, the rest of the folks in the house did the logical thing. They searched the rest of the house, the closets, the other rooms. This was a 20-month-old toddler now, mind you, who could conceivably have gotten out of the crib and maybe hidden himself away. Um, Lindbergh's outside. They're all searching the house, including the room where the baby was. Later, Lindbergh comes back in, and he goes upstairs, and he calls uh, Betty and Ann into the room and says, look, I found a note. Now, this was a ransom note that he said was, he showed him, it was left on the windowsill in the nursery. And he said, look, there's a note. Don't anybody touch it. We need to get fingerprints. Now, this was after everybody else had been searching the house, and suddenly Lindbergh goes back in and finds the note that apparently everybody else overlooked. We thought that was very strange. Um, and it was very strange that he would say, don't anybody touch it. we got to get fingerprints. So there were a whole series of events like that, uh, Jim, that just, just didn't add up, just didn't make any sense. Um, and they also pointed uh, to Charles Lindbergh. Tell me about the note itself. What was it asking for, for the Lindberghs to do? I, I guess there was a, fi a financial figure given, and, and what instructions yes. were they given uh, as far as paying a ransom? Yeah, it asks for a specific amount, $50,000 in, in, in smaller bills, 
um, and it said that we would be in touch. And as you as you point out very well, Jim, and if you if you take a look at our book, we have photographs. There's a photograph in our book of the actual note, the ransom note. Um, very poor English, almost like it's being made to look like somebody who doesn't know English very well, and it's written poorly, but it demands a $50,000 ransom, and it says we'll be in touch. Um, and there were these uh, markings at the end, almost like a, a double circle, a peculiar marking at the end of the note. Um, and so that was what was left there. And uh, as Lindbergh said, he didn't allow anybody to touch the uh, note, even the first police officers on the scene, the local police, Hopewell police, the chief there, a small department, he showed up, the assistant chief, and then they called in the New Jersey State Police, and ultimately Colonel Schwarzkopf himself showed up that night, and they all waited until the fingerprint guy got there. Uh, he's the one that actually opened the note and dusted it carefully for prints as he did uh, the windowsill, uh, which you'd have to come in through if you uh, were climbing this homemade ladder that they later found uh, some distance from the house um, and the crib uh, and other places. And uh, the comment from the uh, fingerprint expert was it almost as if somebody wiped the whole room down. Yeah, what's interesting to me is because I mean, he, he didn't find any prints. As a parent, as a parent, okay, uh, you, I mean, if I, you know, I have three children. If something like that happened when my children were that age, I would have ripped that letter open to see what's there, see if I can of get course. some information yeah. to act on that immediately. Because uh, I'm not waiting for somebody else to take care of this. This person could be just outside, you know, just down the road, whatever. Especially, you know, someone with, um, I'm sure he had 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 reliable vehicles and and ways that he could have, um, you know, mounted a, a chase. Uh, himself. But so much about this is strange. But then when we get into the individuals that are accused, um, if I understand it correctly, there was uh, a total of three different suspects and the money, eventually some money was actually uh, paid out. And that becomes part of the trail to the individual that Correct. is ultimately convicted. But tell me how the money um how how did they make a drop of money? And then how did that money get uh, to this Hauptman who was eventually executed for the crime? So uh, Lindbergh, when he took charge of the, the uh, investigation, one of the things he says, well, I'll deal with the kidnappers when there's a demand. Well, this was reported in the news. And of course, this is the most famous, famous family in America that they're talking about. And so everybody was reporting this, and in fact, uh, everybody, there, uh, everybody and their brothers started making demands for ransom monies. And in the ensuing couple of years, there were actually three sets of ransom monies paid over to people. But the one that ended up um, associated with uh, Bruno Richard Hoffman, they, they were. Uh, m gold certificate bills we were on a gold standard then these were gold certificate bills that were paid over in to a cemetery at a cemetery uh, to cemetery john um, by an intermediary who inserted himself into this case by the name of jassy and uh, uh, Lindbergh had authorized him to make this 
transfer of monies in this cemetery. And it was that set of monies, because they were able to trace these bills and they were numbered, the police had circulated the numbers uh, of all of these gold certificate bills. And the other thing that happened that aided in finding, finally tracing this to Hoffman was that uh, we were taken off the gold standard, so these were no longer in circulation. So merchants and other people were, when they got a gold certificate bill, they were still good, but they were noticeable. And Hoffman pulled into a gas station in the Bronx one day and paid um, for the gas with a $10 bill that was part of this ransom money. And that's what led the police to Bruno Richard Hoffman. And two and a half years after the kidnapping is when he was arrested and because it, of passing the they, bill. They uh, took his license tag down, I guess, at the gas station? Yep. And that's... The, the gas station attendant wrote down the license number. Now, on this gold certificate. And now, now his defense was, I, I had the money, but I didn't. I'm not the one that uh, you know that that, st- that took the baby. I'm not the one that extorted uh, for the ransom. I happened to get this money another way. Tell us what his story was. His story was, and he was a German immigrant. He was over from Germany, and he had friends in the German community. His story was that another immigrant, a fellow German, came to him um, one day, and the the fellow's name was Isidore Fish. And uh, he had been a friend that he had known through various jobs and stuff. And Isidore said, I have to go back uh, to Germany. And he says, but I want you to keep a few things for me while I'm gone. And one of the things he handed to him, and Bruno agreed to do this, was uh, a, a small package, almost like shoebox size, wrapped up with a string around it, um, that he ended up putting in this, according to Hoffman, putting in his uh, closet off his kitchen on the top shelf. And uh, Isidore Fish said, I'll be back in a few months. Well, unfortunately, when he went back to uh, Germany, um, he ended up getting very sick there, and he died. And when Isidore's brother got a hold of Bruno, he said, uh, my brother's died. That's when, according to Hoffman, he went in the closet, and he discovered that this package was actually about $14,000 in gold certificate notes. And that's what he started using. Um, and so he claims, that's how I got the money. I had not. He always maintained his innocence, as did his wife. Uh, Anna Hoffman, and until the day she died, in fact, she was in her late 90s. She never remarried. She said, my Bruno picked me up from the bakery where I worked that night and took me home. He couldn't possibly have been in Hopewell, New Jersey. But it was the money. It was the money that uh, that they went on in building a very circumstantial case against Hoffman. And notwithstanding the fact that he did have that money, there was never anything that connected him to the abduction of the child. There was no witnesses. There was no forensic evidence, no fingerprints. There was nothing. In fact, as you said, he had an alibi. So just this one piece of evidence that he had this money, is that all that they had to put this guy uh, to death? So what the other thing that they had, Jim, that they made a big deal of that they used at trial was this homemade ladder. So uh, this was a second-story window. Right. 
um, when the police investigated, they found the footprints of what looked like a ladder at, at the, in the ground beneath that window. When they did an initial search of the property about 50 or 60 feet away and towards the, the brush, they did find a ladder that was homemade that was in sections where you could insert dowels into the sections so that you could make a complete ladder. And so they reassembled this. It was off to the side, and they put it up to the window, and it just barely reached below the window. Um, so a short person actually on this ladder really would have a hard time struggling to get into the baby's window. A tall person necessarily wouldn't. Hoffman was short. Lindbergh, of course, we know, was quite tall. Um, so that's the other thing they connected because they took one rail from this ladder and they went to uh, Hopman's garage. Now, he was a carpenter, so he kept a bunch of lumber and scraps in his garage. And they did a search of his house and then they went into the attic, not just his garage, and they claimed that they matched a board that was missing in his attic to this rail of this ladder. And that was the other piece of evidence they said tied Hopman to the kidnapping. Now, again, if you look in our book, there's a picture of the ladder and there's a picture of the missing board in his attic. And, uh, well, a so-called wood expert testified that it came from the same piece. But, you know, to the untrained eye, it looks like it doesn't look anything similar. But this is one of the other pieces of circumstantial evidence they used to tie Hopman um, to uh, being in Hopewell because it was the only thing. There was nothing else. As you said, there were no prints. There was no other kind of uh, demonstrative evidence tying um, uh, Hopman uh, to being the person on that ladder in 1932 in Hopewell, New Jersey. Now, to fill in the timeline, so how much time passes from the night that the baby is allegedly abducted to the time that they find the baby's body? Tell us that time window, and then how was the baby's body found? Sure. So uh, two and a half months later, uh, I think about 72 days uh, after the kidnapping is reported, a uh, truck driver... Uh, from New York City, um, a black man, uh, pulls over to the side of the road um, in a about th- what would have been as a crow flies about three miles from the Hopewell house. And he goes in the woods to uh, relieve himself and unfortunately discovers a, uh, a badly decomposed body of a young child. Uh, turned out to be the body uh, of Charles Lindbergh, Jr. Um and Lindbergh and Betty Gow, the nurse, were called down to identify the body. Um, there was a cursory examination done by the county coroner, but before more uh, of an autopsy, a more complete autopsy could be uh, uh, done on the on the body, uh, Lindbergh says, "I want the baby cremated." And within an hour, the baby was cremated. So there was no further chance to do a more thorough. Uh, autopsy, um, a a more thorough analysis of any evidence that could be linked to the body. And as you may know, uh, Jim, you know, bodies are uh, 
one of the most important pieces of evidence when you're investigating um, some kind of a homicide. And another that's just another piece of this that doesn't make sense, because in my mind, if you play out the scenario of a kidnapping, if I'm a kidnapper, do I leave the child behind deceased if I'm trying to get money? So if I'm trying to get money, Correct. because I right. would and, and you would think like in today's world, they would, um, you know, clear the ground underneath your feet. They would be out walking that property for miles looking for any signs of that child. And the idea that the child is left behind in the woods near the home, it almost reminds me of that Casey right. Anthony case where a uh, child is dead and found in a nearby uh, wooded area. Um, now, when the child's body was found, is that when obviously this changed from a, a kidnapping case then uh, to a murder case? How did the investigation change at that point? Because it, it looked like, it, I mean, it sounds like in the, in the intervening uh, weeks uh, leading up to that, it was all about the cat and mouse of coming up with ransom money and paying ransom money and waiting to hear back from people. So now that we know that the child is deceased, um, how does that change the nature of what the authorities do going forward from that moment? Well, it changes it from a, a kidnapping case to a homicide case. So, um, you know, the focus then becomes uh, uh, on trying to uh, connect a perpetrator somewhere and develop evidence to show uh, uh, who, who ultimately had uh, committed the homicide on the child. Now, here's the interesting thing, though, Jim. You know, one of the things that were noted in this cursory examination by the coroner was that there was a fracture to the skull, the baby's skull. And uh, the, there, uh, the second floor window, there was a cement ledge below the second floor window. So one of the things we looked at, and here's an, ex an extraordinary thing that we found in researching uh, the background to Lindbergh. Two and a half months before this kidnapping was reported, the alleged kidnapping, at the Englewood home of Dwight Ambassador Dwight Morrow and his wife, Charles Lindbergh took the baby one afternoon, hid the baby in a closet, and caused the whole house to be in an uproar, um, thinking that the baby had been kidnapped then. And Lindbergh did this. And it was only after about 20 minutes of a frantic search in this huge Englewood estate um, that Lindbergh went and got the child out of a closet and said, oh, I was only kidding. Here he is. Wow. And he, he had a very yeah. unusual sense of humor, if you would even call it that. I had read a story where he and his wife were having a, a beautiful dinner, entertaining some, some folks, and he picked up a glass of water and poured it over his wife's head. Just to as a joke yes uh, I mean, yes as a joke it, yeah i yeah, i don't, I don't think know, i would i think i would be a, a homicide victim that night if i did something yeah, like that yeah, you and, to my wife but you but this was but I, I mean obviously you know heroes people that do these kinds of stunts you know puts his life on the line to fly 33 uh hours and, and all of that these are sometimes eccentric people but i don't even know what word i would use to hide your own child and make everyone in the household think the child's missing and that being strange enough in and of itself, but then to think that his child actually not long after that actually does become uh, missing. Um, you know, that, that Correct. to me is, is bizarre. Um, 
So what I was getting to, though, about the transition of the case from kidnapping to a homicide is I'm just wondering at, at what as a police officer yourself, an investigator, once you you cross that threshold that wait a minute, the child is dead. So you would think that the theory of a kidnapping would start to become diminished. I mean, unless you sort of looked at it like, well, the child was kidnapped and then accidentally died while in the hands of the kidnappers. So we're still going to pursue this this whole motive of kidnapping and money uh, as what the, the initial reason was. And maybe it later changed. I, I'm sure that that does happen. But finding the child there on the property also I don't know. I, I would think that maybe looking back at the family again or or maybe, uh, I don't know, not becoming as focused on these alleged kidnappers and, and the ransom and all of that would have would have taken place. But that didn't happen. It seemed like the kidnapping narrative was was what they continued with. And that's uh, what they went after uh, this Hoffman for was a kidnapping. And then was the argument that the child must have died while he was being you know getting away with the child at, at that at that night the child died and he uh yeah that he either recklessly or purposely killed him and uh, but then continue with the kidnapping and that was the theory at the trial uh when they when they uh, you know new, new jersey tried him and then ultimately sentenced him to death um that it was a kidnapping gone afoul uh, as you said um, but it was a, it was a very weak case. It was a very sensational trial. Um, you know, the New Jersey State Police, they have a museum and uh, you can still look at some of the artifacts from this case. Wow. Um, fascinating, really. Is the house still and there? Is the, the Lindbergh, and, Lindbergh's house, is that still there? It's still there. Uh, it, it's not in the Lindbergh family uh, any longer. At one point, it was a... Uh, I believe the New Jersey, uh, uh, New, the government of New Jersey had owned it at one point, or it was a nonprofit for uh, uh, children, and uh, I don't know if, uh, like a school for children, and I don't know if it's still in that capacity or if it's privately owned. Well, that would be quite a a video to go to the house and see. You know, if that second story bedroom is still as it was, at least, I mean, structurally, that the house is still similar to as it was and to even walk the, you know, I'm sure the area has probably developed quite a bit, but even just to walk the grounds. The area has developed quite a bit since then, as you might imagine, but um, it is, the house is still there. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, we found one of the last known living um, witnesses to this case, a man named Benjamin Lupica. When we interviewed him, he was in uh, living in Upper State New York, um, and he was suffering from Parkinson's. But he was very sharp. He was uh, a 17-year-old student at the time at the Princeton Academy, and he lived about a mile and a half down the road on the family farm. So we found Benjamin Lupica because he had been interviewed by the New Jersey State Police. And he said, you know, that afternoon, I saw a car go by with a with a white guy in it, and it looked like he had some kind of ladder inside his car. And that was significant um, because this may have been the only eyewitness to somebody being in the area that day uh, late that afternoon. Uh, 
and he described the person. He said, I, you know, I can't tell you who it was, just that it was a white guy. He says, but I know for certain that there were uh, New York, uh, I'm sorry, New Jersey license plates on the car. Hmm. And yet, of course, if Hoffman somehow had driven out there, somehow managed to sneak through, park someplace in the woods and sneak through the woods at 8.30, 9 o'clock at night and managed to carry this sectional ladder and, and get in there and get out, even though how would he know they were even there at the time and what window to go to, um, you know, Hoffman would have been driving a car with New York license plates on it, not New Jersey plates. Yeah, that 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 part. To so Lindbergh drove uh, cars with New Jersey plates on it, <laughs> and uh, of course Lindbergh was a pilot, and he was also proud, uh, very prideful of working on his own airplanes, and and uh, he would often have to climb up into the engine cowls on these planes that he would fly to check the mechanics of it. And one could easily think of having to use a sectional ladder, that something that could fit in the fuselage of a plane behind the seats. So Hoffman was convicted, and I understand the prosecutor even said in his arguments that it couldn't be the family, like which is which was really that's opposite of what we would do today. Uh, I mean, the idea that Correct. the idea yeah. that you would argue as a prosecutor that there's no chance. It could have been the family, so it had to be an outsider, and this is the guy, and that was their right. argument, wasn't it? That it could not have been the family. It could not have been, and that, look, we found the guy with the money, and uh, from the ransom, although, you know, it was one set of ransoms paid over, um, two and a half years later, and again, very circumstantial case. But yes, no, they never considered the Lindberghs themselves suspects. Now, they did think that maybe there had been a uh, – they looked at all the household staff members because the Morrows had about 15 full and part-time household staff members to keep up their Englewood uh, estate. They looked very hard at Betty Gow and her boyfriend um, because she had been brought out that day from Englewood uh, to help Anne with the baby that night. Um they looked at uh, so they looked at all the household staff members, put a lot of pressure on them because, again, um, you know, to their credit, they thought, Jesus, it's got to be somebody with inside knowledge of this. What they failed to do, though, which police would do automatically now, is they would look at the family members and you would work to eliminate them as suspects. Or and, not. And Stephen, as but you'd we, always look to the family members and, and you would never let a family member run the investigation. Right. right of course. That, Lindbergh that, that's called hard all to the shots imagine. on this. Now, as we close it yeah. out in our last well, couple know, of minutes, give us the give sure. us your as we call it, the payoff pitch. Give us your theory as to what actually happened that night. Lindbergh, uh, we believe, Greg and I, in researching this, uh, arrived home earlier than uh, he indicated when he came in the house. And in fact, when he drove up the driveway to, before he came in the house, he honked the horn uh, to alert people inside, I'm home. Now, he didn't usually do that, but he did that night. That was about 8.25 in the evening. Then he went inside and he had... Uh, 
some dinner with Ann downstairs, never went to check on the baby. Our theory is that he actually arrived home sooner than that, and he was going to pull another one of his pranks um, and get the baby from uh, the crib and maybe walk in the front door and say, gee, look who I found outside. Something of that, another one of his sick pranks, and I could I could detail many others that even before this he had uh, pulled on friends and relatives that were anything but funny. But we theorized that he was the one on the ladder; it was his ladder, and that he accidentally dropped the baby coming out of the window, um, and the baby died, and he covered it up by uh, uh, making up the story of a lin- uh, of a kidnapping. Yeah. And that, that, that to me is, I, you know, when I, when you first shared that with me, my first reaction was, wow, uh, you know, back when we had John two years ago, but you know, this, this is, this is how crimes are solved. It, it, it's, it's typically, uh, you know, what's possible. I mean, uh, it, it's improbable. It's unlikely that anybody from the outside would have gone into the, to this wooded area and come to this house and all the things you point out, the second story window, uh, the only one that wasn't latched, all of these, you know, this odd ransom note, uh, Man, so many just unusual pieces to this case, and maybe that's why it's so uh, continues to be discussed, and there's so much interest in it because there is so many pieces to the puzzle. I mean, this is all the ultimate clue game, right? I mean, who who did it, and and why these these uh, various um, these circles at the bottom of the letter um, continue to fascinate me. These markings. Has anybody ever figured out right. what these markings were were or were supposed to be? Uh, there's like a circle and then there's some half circles drawn and a couple of dots. Um, I've never seen anything like that before. And I, I was thinking, you know, what is this? Is this supposed to be some kind of a, a secret s- sign that would scare the family thinking, oh, they've been taken by a child's been taken by a cult group or something. Whoever wrote this letter. Obviously, if we if we say it was Lindbergh that took the baby, he wrote the letter. What do you think the thought was behind right. these weird markings on the bottom of the letter? Well, think of this, Jim. I mean, if you're going to fabricate a kidnapping story, aren't you going to want to try and make the ransom note unusual in some respects, uh, aside from the writing to try and throw people off? Um, aren't you going to do something that uh, is kind of not not necessarily a red herring, but it's going to make the note unique and perhaps something that's indecipherable. Yeah. So abs- that might be one thing. Yeah, absolutely. But I was wondering if there was if anybody ever connected that to something. Like is that a real symbol of something or is that just a random thing that's on that letter? Yeah, we're not aware that it's a symbol with with meaning uh to some some something else. Um we never ran across anything like that in either the investigatory notes or at trial. Uh, Greg went through all the trial transcripts of the Hoffman case, you know, to 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 go over all of the evidence that was presented. So um did no, they ever did they ever take that letter and try to compare like a handwriting sample from Hoffman uh to that letter or any it, letters actually that they, they had written? actually they did and uh, it was uh, they had they had a handwriting expert that took a look at it and said, yeah, probably could be. And um, I, I, I believe one of them 
Greg covered more of the trial, but I believe they did have somebody testify to that, that it could have been Hoffman. Wow. It wasn't real definitive. But, so, of course, you know, you and I know that you, you don't really have to be an expert. If you're familiar enough with somebody's handwriting, you, you can pretty much decipher that yourself. Um, conversely, if you uh, work hard, most all of us can disguise our handwriting pretty well. Right. Yeah, it's just a, so, the whole case continues to be fascinating. So, uh, Stephen, do you have anything coming up? Are you doing any other media appearances or any speaking engagements? Uh, people seem to not be able to get enough of this. Well, now, periodically things come up where we're asked to, to uh, give a talk on the case. Um, you know, it, it comes and ebbs and flows. You know, ironically, 10 years after a book came out, uh, Jim, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, it turned out um, through DNA evidence that uh, uh, Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh, actually had three mistresses back in Europe. He had seven other children by. This was while he was married to Anne. Um, so, uh, so now we know his that, real uh, his real hint. motivation for flying by himself across the ocean <laughs> often yeah he, he <laughs> to, often to, went to europe on business and uh, yeah. between 1958 and 1967 he had seven other children with three other women two of whom were sisters yeah i i read all of that and tells, tells you a little bit about his character yeah i mean and so so he obviously um being this famous hero probably famous person most famous person in the world while he was living uh clearly you know had all these narcissistic tendencies but maybe a sociopath as well if you know he could do all of this and his family uh you know stayed intact he stayed married to his wife all those years but yet had all these other things going on uh, other families it almost sounds yep. like a lifetime movie <laughs> And there was a lifetime of deceit, frankly, uh, as his youngest child with Anne, uh, Reeve Lindbergh, wrote in 2003 in her diary the story about the seven other siblings she didn't know she had. She said this story reflects absolutely Byzantine layers of deception on the part of our shared father. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the only thing nobody knew it. The only thing more more fitting would have been if he ended up as president of the United States. <laughs> that would have that would have been kind of the, the crowning blow of how a story like that typically ends is, uh, you know, guys like that tend to uh, ascend and ascend and ascend. Uh, he did end up, though, with quite a lot of money uh, in his life. Uh, not only, you know, obviously he was he, he uh, was able to cash in on a celebrity, but he was part of right. um, really the expansion of commercial airlines in the United States. I guess he also had he was, invented yeah. quite a few things as well. So uh, did he die leaving a lot of money to his family? You know, I don't know about uh, his estate and how it was left. He, he, he died. He lived alone by himself the last few years of his life in Hawaii, which is where he died and which is where he's buried. Um, and, uh, that was in 1974. He was, he was 72 years old. He, he ended up dying of, uh, lymphoma. Um, but he lived there pretty much by himself in the last few years of his life in Hawaii. And as you said, uh, he, he had very, he had a lot of very lucrative contracts for consulting and other things with the fledgling airlines when they were first being formed. And, uh, he did cash in on his fame.
And it's uh, fascinating, too, folks. If you want to go online, you can actually see a picture of his gravestone, which is um, at a small church in Hawaii. And it just simply says his name and uh, the the day of his birth and the and the uh, year of his death. It's uh, there's no no big Charles Lindbergh, you know, uh, gravesite or statue or anything of any note, uh, a very simple gravesite that you probably wouldn't even notice unless it was pointed out to you. And that's uh, how his life ended. Uh, he died at the age of 72, lived a long life. Uh, but it sounds like there's many secrets, perhaps, that are still to be told about Charles Lindbergh. Thank you so much, Stephen, for being with us. Tell us again how people can get the book and if you have a website or anything like that. So the book is still available on Amazon. The book is Crime of the Century, The Lindbergh Kidnapping Hoax. Uh, my co-author's name is Gregory Algren, and uh, I'm Stephen Monier, and uh, take a look at it. We would encourage you to do that. It's also available in presently in hardcover, paperback, and Kindle. Is there an audio version yet? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, um, very good. A lot of our pub listeners... publisher hasn't told us that. Okay, well, a lot of our listeners ask about audio. That's why I ask about it as well. Thank you so much for being with us, sir. We hope you'll come back and visit again soon. All right, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. Wow. I, I can't get enough of that case. I don't know about you folks, but man, it's just like there's so much about that, that case that almost brings it into the modern day. I mentioned the Casey Anthony case. Um, I mentioned, you know, we talk about a ransom note, uh, kind of a bizarre ransom note. We, you know, right there, we go to the John Benet Ramsey uh, case and that strange uh, ransom note, which, by the way, my producer, we've been trying to book, I think, two different guests to talk about the John Benet Ramsey case. So that's something I'm looking forward to as well. I know that those of you that are really into the Lindbergh case are going to skewer me once this goes online because the last interview I did, I didn't ask the questions you wanted and I didn't, I didn't go in this direction far enough or that direction far enough. Um, you know, I, I do the best I can. I'm not an expert on the case, but I find it fascinating. And I thought we covered a lot of great ground tonight. So whether this is new for you or you're a seasoned expert on this case, I, I sure hope you got something out of it. Uh, stay in touch. The website is christianmoney.com. A lot of things happening. We do a lot of videos on YouTube, on Facebook all throughout the week. So it's not just Sunday night. Uh, we've got new content uh, several days a week uh, going out there as well in terms of uh, videos. Of course, all my books are up at Amazon.com as well, and we appreciate you being with us. Remember, if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. We'll talk to you next time. So long, everybody.